and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Port, and we're talking about how to anticipate and avoid issues at the aging stage of estate planning as you are now mature and you have adult children. Thank you, Craig. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today psychologist Mary Gresham, founder of Atlanta Financial Psychology, John Montag, president and CIO of Montag, a wealth management firm, and attorney Kel Long, a partner at Hendrick, Roscoe, Zittrin, and Long, LLP. Now, to, uh, to begin our show, if uh, we could have each of you describe a little bit about uh, your, your firm, your practice area, or your expertise. Uh, Dr. Gresham, let's start with you. I am both a clinical and a financial psychologist, and I have a practice that includes both sides of that. In the financial psychology practice, one of the things I do is to try to facilitate conversations between family members, husband and wife, parent and child, and siblings around the topics of money and around conflict areas. Very good. John? Uh, yes. Um, first and foremost, thank you for inviting us to participate. And um, in preparation and in listening to some of the past uh, past programs, congratulations on your 25th anniversary. I have to add that I know you have done charitable giving, and as a past chairman of Families First, I just wanted to say thank you for um, for what your firm has done for the community. Um, it really is admirable. Well, thank you very um, much. It's an important part of uh, what we want to project out as as being important to us. Well, it's showing. Um, my name is John Montag. I am um, I'm the president of Montag, Montag Wealth Management. We manage about $1.2 billion um, for primarily families, high net worth individuals. We do a little bit of institutional work. Um, there's lots of conversation about wealth and wealth transfer. And where it really came from is that my grandfather was in the business as well at another firm. And my father's in the business, and so this was dining room table conversation for us. So you've had those generational conversations yeah. we're going to be talking about uh, as we proceed. Very Kel? much. That's an interesting background, I must say. Um, my name is Kel Long, and um, our firm is known as the state planners, state planning attorneys. Uh, that involves a lot of tax um, planning in addition to prep will and trust preparation and then the topics that uh, we'll be talking about today or what we deal with on a daily basis. Very good, thank you. Let's jump in. Um, the starting point for any conversation is starting. And sounds kind of obvious, doesn't it? How does a family who have not generally talked about money and they've now finally gone to Kel and said, the, adult, the parents, we want to plan for our children. We're 60 years old. Our children are now adults. They've graduated from college. They're starting to have a family. We kind of know what our businesses are like, but I've never talked to my children about this. How does one advise their clients, their patients, how to start that conversation? Kel, why don't you start? Um, well, I'd say that 
there's different scenarios of whether that is you should involve the children or not involve the children. There's differently those, those scenarios can can vary greatly. Um, but as they and it also depends on the parents' comfort level of involving the children. And sometimes the some situations are very clear that the children should be involved and others are not. The, the situation can be very simple and can be, but in other kind types of situations, uh, the can vary and uh, bringing people in or not is just depends on the fa- particular family situation. But we do try to guide them in that process of do we invo- when do we involve the children in the process. Dr. Gresham, how do you know whether using Kell's words, they're they're ready for it, so to speak, that it's appropriate for them to talk to their families? And, and I might add, you might have to start talking between spouses. That's a good place to begin is between the spouses who are creating the estate plan. Part of the reason this particular topic is so hard is because it's what we call the double taboo. We're talking about two taboo topics. One is money, which is still a highly taboo topic in our culture. That's not true in all cultures around the world, but it is true in American culture. If you go on TripAdvisor, you'll see that they're recommending to people who visit the United States that money is a taboo topic here. So it's a cultural problem in our culture. The other topic that's taboo is death, and particularly my impending death. So here we have a double whammy. Now there are many excellent resources that people can look at that give you starter questions. There are decks of cards that give you starter questions. I would recommend that you do that between spouses and then talk about including the children down the road. One of the things I've read recently, and I mentioned this on our show last month, was that um, someone's made the observation that those without money actually tend to talk about it more because they have to. And as one acquires more wealth and gets more comfort, there is, and whether it's a taboo or just a desire to shield, you know, younger generations from concerns about risk and all that, that that actually having more wealth actually uh, facilitates in an odd way the the uh, desire not to discuss topics such as money and wealth. That's true. More money, more complexity. Right. So the conversation becomes much more complicated as you create layers of wealth. And it's not a topic that's easily broken into small bites that are discrete. It's a complicated, long series of dialogues that need to be occurring in the family around a topic that's taboo. And particularly wealthy clients are reluctant to discuss this because in many areas, wealthy are both envied and treated with some hostility. So it becomes a topic that gets loaded with shame, embarrassment, and discomfort the more wealth that you have because if you start to listen to what people say about those who are wealthy, we both admire and envy them and at the same time we have some hostility and negativity towards people who are wealthy and people are trying to protect their children from that point of view instead of discuss it openly. 
Some people will look up to you unreasonably because you have wealth, and some people will envy you and be negative towards you because you have wealth. It's really important to try to prepare your adult children for that experience. John, um, we were t- uh, Robert had mentioned that if you have the more money you have, sometimes the harder it is to talk, but maybe the greater need, but it's much easier to talk when you have less money. Mm-hmm. I fit in the latter category, so we talk all the time. <laughs> um, but when you're dealing with with your clients, mm-hmm. is is there do you find that there's resistance to tell the children because they might have a fear of entitlement? And is there some concern along those lines that it's really none of their business, that if they get the money in the end, they, the, the only only real conversation we should have is thank you. Do you find that to be the case? It's it's sometimes the case and not always the case. Um, I, I think Mary touches on some, on a very key point, the, the practice in in the wealth management arena has gone towards family offices, which makes her work, I mean, it's good for her business, truthfully, because it means families are that much more discreet. She'll have time to give contact information. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, but the, for our clients, I think going back, rewinding almost to one of the first questions um, about um, finding someone and asking them how to speak, it's finding a practitioner who is comfortable with saying, we should talk about this with your family. So the short answer of do you do we have clients who want to talk about this with the next generation is yes we have some clients who do and yes we have some clients who don't and our role as a practitioner is to be willing to accept them for who they are and then go from there and to encourage them to nudge them if we can towards having the conversation but at some point um, you might lose the client and you have to decide if you're willing to take that risk how do you encourage? Because it seems to me, even if your clients have a desire to talk, and I have found kind of the gen- my my parents' generation don't talk, right? But right. even if they want to, they don't know how. How? Well, I my in my own world, I think part of it is finding an opportunity. So opportunity rests in big issues or in little issues. A big issue is a catalyst. There's a death in the family. There's a transition. There is something that is going on that puts all of us at the same table at one given point in time. Could be a marriage, could be a birth of a child, but there is a very clear and definitive starting point. And then um, the second is this is what I'm interested in doing, and I don't know where to start. Kind of what you were what you were starting out by saying, Robert, and that is that um, that's a stumble, stumble, you know, step, stumble. You're going to make a mistake, and in either scenario, you're going to make a mistake. But when you are willing and ready and want to start the conversation, then it comes to a point of finding a small opportunity, if there isn't a large catalyst, and saying, let's move forward with that. And that, our role then becomes giving different ideas. I can give you client examples of the way that it's been handled, but there are different ways of doing it. We're making an assumption here. Maybe I should take a step back. We're all assuming, or at least I am, that we should be having these conversations. So let me ask Kel, should we be having these conversations? Well, I would say at a minimum, the conversation should be that uh, from the parent to the to the adult children, that we have done planning. This is our attorney. These are are our advisors. This is where our documents are located, and whether or not, um, and this is who is going to be in charge. That might be the next. Maybe you do or don't say who's going to be in charge, but you at least let them know that it's been done and where to find things and who to contact. 
in the event of death or in the event that there's uh, a, a, a medical situation where you need to locate the uh, power of attorney for health care. Now it's called Advanced Directive for Healthcare in Georgia, different living will, different different terms, different states for the same documents. But you need to be able they need to be able to find those documents or know who to, to go to to find those documents. Beyond that, then it again it varies in the individual situations of you know, whether the children's what are the children's attitudes. It's not uncommon at all to have see parents out of three children have a lot of tr- put a lot of trust and confidence in one child. And maybe put them in charge, and the others are not in, not as involved. Again, it just varies. Does that create resentment as a general rule with the other kids? Well, if the other kids don't know <laughs> that their play, the parents have been talking to the other, and that's one of the dynamics of it. I think that you have to deal with. They're going to find out. They will find out eventually, but um, at least the parents not having to deal with it on the day to day basis of all that pressure. So sometimes, again, we get the children involved, and sometimes we don't. I'll give you an example. Is if you have children that are involved in a family business or children that are involved in the complexities of the wealth management or other things, then clearly they're going to be in, involved in an up-to-speed. And then you have other situations where there's, there's wealth, but it's more I would refer to as more passive investments, and, um, and they're dealing with an investment, investment advisors, and so there's not an active business. There's not a lot of complexity to it. There may be a lot of wealth. And the children may not be involved in as much in those particular cases. One, one of the things that interests me as I'm hearing you talk, Kel, and I, I thought of um, Mary as well, is in the legal profession and in the uh, psychology profession, we have some confidentiality requirements. I'm not aware of whether that is true in the financial planning uh, perspective, but presumably there's some level of confidentiality yeah, there. Is. there. So. Um, how do each of you deal with inquiries, I'll say, from other family members or lower generations with respect to what is happening above? What, what have their parents planned? I want to check it out. I want to see whether it's a good thing. I want them to meet my financial advisor. I want them to meet my attorney. I want them to see someone else. I'm presuming that's come up, and I'm curious how you deal with that very practical issue, which is in some ways could be viewed as a request for communication to take place. In other instances, may be viewed with some hostility as an effort to sort of take over, and I want to be in charge. Well, we have pretty clear rules in psychology about confidentiality, to whom it belongs, and what we need to do when we get requests for information. One of the things that's a best practice in psychology is, and people really misunderstand this, due to HIPAA regulations, I cannot confirm or deny whether X person is my client unless I have a release of information signed by them. But I can listen to and accept any information that comes from a family member. So I say very clearly, I can't let you know about that, but you can tell me anything you want to about your parents, your children, what I need to know. I just can't respond back to you. And then I tell the client I've received a phone call from a family member who has concerns about you, and it's done in a way that this person cares about you and has concerns, has the following questions. And then we often role play how will that client then have that conversation about that person's concerns. 
John or Kel? Well, I would say that um, we will have generations that will come to us. Our, our business involves working with multiple generations. So we'll work for the parents and the children um, or the grandchildren. And in several situations, they already know of each other coming in. They refer to each other in. Um, we do have situations where they don't know of it um, and um, or where we'll have we have two situations where divorced parents happen to hire us independently and so we're doing work for the child but we know both sides of the equation um, and it is a very fragile setting where you um, when the when a generation below offers the opportunity and says I would like to engage in conversation it really is your chance to look the parent in the eye and say look you know, here's your chance to respond. Now, I can't dictate a response as much as I can encourage a response. And here's one similar. Uh, let's practice what that may look like, what the one or two areas where it might make sense to introduce your practitioners or, or to discuss one small corner that might allow you to, to leverage off of the conversation. Let's ask kind of a fun question. So what are the situations where the communication becomes most important. I'll start off. It seems to me mm-hmm. that you could solve a lot of problems or avoid a lot of problems if you just discussed in advance and had whatever fights or discussions you're going to have who the fiduciary is going to be without springing it on them. So that's kind of one of my big areas. What areas are you seeing in your practice where these are the topics that if you could get communication, it would be most helpful to the family? Well, one of the main jobs of a family is to teach about emotions and how to deal with emotions. The family is the container for how we get our emotional education. And in that emotional education, what conversation I think is really important to have is how does our family want to deal with conflict? When we have conflicts between family members, how do we want to approach it? And what's the process going to be for conflict resolution in our family? Because the reason many people don't have good open conversations is fear of conflict. Well, if you practice conflict resolution and you have a clear process for conflict resolution in your family, you become less frightened of conflict and you then are able to be more open. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. We're talking with psychologists, Dr. Mary Gresham, John Montag, and Kel Long. So let's let's continue on in that. Uh, what areas are you seeing in a practical practice, either as a financial planner or as an estate planner, where it cries out, if you had just talked to your family, imagine what we could have helped you do or the problems we could have avoided for you. What are the kind of issues? One of the issues I see often is where you have a, a children, multiple children, and, and one of them is different. Their situation is very different than the others. Do you mean all kids are not exactly the same? I hear that all the time. I have four kids. I raised them all the same, but I have this one. <laughs> And then you, and then you, then you, I'm ready for, and I've heard it all before. Is what the situation? Is. Sometimes that child is has uh, uh, alcohol or substance abuse issues. Um, they may be uh, disabled in various ways, 
And so I think in addressing their, their particular needs, it's good for the family, the other, the other children, to um, understand how that sibling is being provided, going to be provided for, and that those needs are going to be met so that they'll know that that money or nest egg for that child who is not able to create their own wealth uh, will be handled. Another situation— That seems like an area for opportunity for great resentment by the other kids. Does that happen? I wouldn't say it's more it's resentment is, is where they feel that they're being treated unequally is where that comes up. And another scenario where that comes up is if you have a family business and one child is active in the business and the other child or children are not active in the business, the child that's active in the business generally t- ends up taking over the business and receives the benefits and commonly has a very large salary out of the business and those types of things. And so then you're into trying to come up with some type of fairness or equitable division of the balance of the estate, which can be very difficult. And I can tell you with businesses in that respect, those are the people, if they don't talk and have a plan that come to us because they're going to have a dispute typically about two years in. The only thing I would contest, of course, is the high salary part. Just (laughs) (laughs) somebody at a family business has to say something. (laughs) Well, well, Kel, to follow on your observation about, you know, you know, you have a few kids and they're different and the family may want to say, you know, Joe or Mary, when I pass, you're going to be the executor of my estate. You're going to be my trustee. Uh, We often see situations where, and of course, we only see the situations that are problems because we deal with litigation, but we often see situations where that seems to have uh, put someone in place who may not necessarily have the capacity, not that they act unfairly intentionally, but they now view themselves as the mother figure, the father figure, and they're going to decide what's right. And you know, word that's used been been used here before. You know, creates resentment, anxiety, questions about whether that's that's being uh, they're being dealt. The others are being dealt with fairly. So, I'm wondering whether that suggests, or how often that suggests in your practice, that a professional fiduciary be put in those roles to eliminate the the family interplay. Well, one of the things I've told clients a lot oftentimes when they talk about putting one child in charge of another child's inheritance, whether that's particularly in the trustee role, my, my son doesn't manage money very well, so um, I'm going to leave all his inheritance in a trust and I'm going to put my daughter in charge of my son's trust, or I'm going a to... set up for a childhood fight reenacted 50 years later. Well, as I, I tell in, them... In the courts. Mary may appreciate this. I, I tell them that... Uh, I can, as an attorney, I can do nothing to create harmony within your family. But there are a couple things I can do that are pretty much guaranteed to destroy any harmony that was in your family. And one of them is putting one child in charge of another child's inheritance. Now, there can be some exceptions to that if you have a child, uh, if, you have one, if a child is in a, um, is a severely disabled uh, situation and inca- they're incapacitated. That that's, can be a different situation. But other, otherwise, the first thing I do to the to the parent is say that we're going to put a professional fiduciary in charge of this particular child's funds. We're not going to have the other children supervising this. And 
But we can also here's here's the thing we can do though to create maybe and that put the other children in an advocacy role versus an adversary role. The advocacy role would they could be what we call the trust protector role, and they would have some oversight over this other child's trust in the form that they could hire and fire the professional fiduciary. There needs to be some oversight over the professional fiduciary to make sure that they're managing the money properly, to make sure that their fees aren't too high and other things. So there needs to be someone to be able to say that that fiduciary needs to be removed. Um, they can then, they can't, they, there always has to be a professional fiduciary in place over that child's trust, but there needs to be someone having some oversight over that professional. And uh, so the other children could serve in that trust protector role, and then they become an advocate versus an adversary. And, and I find that when we're dealing with fiduciaries, it doesn't really matter where one child or one person has more responsibility, the concept of transparency, letting the other kids know what happens in a responsibility is helpful. And from my perspective, that starts with early communication. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen once the trust comes in. John, I didn't give you a chance. Where are the issues that you're seeing in your practice with your clients where these are issues where they're crying out, you need to communicate to avoid issues? I think the one the one idea topic I would add is process. And by that I mean there are too many times where someone will start out they'll, – they'll start out with the assumption, oh, my sibling or my – stepmother or whoever, somebody else is in control when in fact they aren't. And so they don't take the time to listen to what the process is supposed to be. There's a, usually when, when uh, at, at, at someone's passing, there is a process that takes place. It can take a short amount of time and it can take a long amount of time. But we're all sitting around the table as practitioners where most people aren't and they don't quite understand, no, 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 there is a, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay the whole way through. They think this is taking a long time because somebody else who is intentionally trying to harm me, they don't recognize the process. And I'm going to tell you, listen to our show next month and the following month because we're going to talk about really what you just said, which is at the time of death, just understanding the process will make things easier. But let's talk about how you can kind of – foreshadow that to make it easier what do you is that what you're saying now is give them a chance up front give them a chance up front and and what what i've seen that is often very helpful is we have uh, meetings with families where we will include uh where we'll include a state attorney at some point we'll include the accountant at some point we'll include the the people on the team and this gives the family the chance to number one meet the people who are important number two to hear that process and number three to understand what exactly is going to happen to me in you know as as we move forward in time if i'm an adult and i recognize and i've got my own responsibilities um if if we're talking about people who are 60 to 70 years old and they have children we're trying to communicate to the children that 30 year old uh is may or may not now be married may or may not have a child may or may not be a professional and so to allow them to adapt all of those pieces of the puzzle into their own life and respond accordingly and say, I've got something I wish to communicate back, it's very important and it gives them a platform. So that pro- that's what I mean by process. And, and, and let me just touch off. So when you say are married, I think you need to say in today's world, married for the first time. 
And and I think you need to say right. now that we have the recent Supreme Court ruling, it may be a, a, a marriage that is not traditional or, or understandable in that family. So, Dr. Gretchen, I'm going to ask you where, where we see problems. And I'm, I'm curious whether you can solve them in advance is the blended family, the non-traditional family where we think about estate planning. We think about mom, dad and three children who are from the same parent. But that's not the norm, is it? No, it isn't. Not anymore. The traditional family is in the minority now. And we have many, many different kinds of constructions of families, single parents, parents married two or three times, different kinds of partnerships, adopted children, adopted children from around the world. And it's complicated now to be in a family. It's not simple as it was. It's very complex. And I think it's an opportunity to understand diversity, the changing world, how the world has been different. And as much as humanly possible, I try in my conversations with families to try to remove the judgment component of each other. A family is an emotional system that theoretically exists for the support, health, and maintenance of each member. And as much as humanly possible, if you are able to suspend judging each other and making assumptions about each other, you're then able to connect on a different level. How, how, the, do you, how do you do that? Because I thought judgment and guilt were like synonymous with family. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, a lot of the times, one of the things we do in family meetings is begin every sentence with the word I instead of the word you. And when you begin to set up communication processes in a family, I feel is a good way to start a sentence and to take responsibility for your own emotions and to be open and clear about what you're feeling and what you're struggling with in the family. So in best practices in family communication, it would be, I am struggling to accept your choice of partner. One, one of the reasons uh, we were very interested in having you join us, Mary, is um, you bring to this, from my perspective, a view about how people think about money, finance, wealth. That is different than what the rest of us practitioners do, although it, it bleeds into what what we do. And I, what I wanted to ask you is this. I've become very interested in and fascinated by a... I think a relatively new area called behavioral finance, which to my lay perspective has tried to determine how people deal, particularly with financial issues in that sphere as I understand it. And for me, the, the realization of those academics who study this is that people are not necessarily as rational <laughs> as the Adam Smith model might have us believe they're not at all pure capitalism and and is what 
teachings from that, and, and I know John must think about these issues often because they bleed into what you do, particularly with respect to managing finances and how people react to the ups and downs in the markets. How come you didn't buy me Google when it was an IPO and now it's a zillion dollars? Or how come you didn't get me out of Kmart and now it's bankrupt? Whatever. But, but how does... Are there any teachings or observations from behavioral finance to go to what we're trying to address here, which is the communication uh, at the stage where there's uh, planning issues from from a senior generation to a, a more mature generation? I think it's really important to understand that we've got two systems that operate in neuroscience. The fast, emotionally reactive system that's wired for our survival. Which I refer to as everyone but me. Right. <laughs> and then the slower executive function that's more rational. And when you begin to really understand that someone's response, initial response, is going to come generally from the fast, emotionally reactive, survival-oriented brain, and much more down the road, much more slowly, the rational side will kick in. So I teach this to my clients and say, don't accept the first response. It's coming from primitive survival. And we know that right now money in our culture is connected to survival. So people often... And self-worth, I find. People measure their own self-worth, right or wrong, by money. That's part of survival. And so when our survival is threatened by a potential loss of money or a potential uh, or our survival is insured by a potential gain of money, we're operating from our most primitive emotional brain. And, and this is not a plug for a particular book, but there, there's a recent book out by a, um, I guess, a professor, Daniel Kahneman. Mm-hmm. Entitled what? Thinking fast, thinking, thinking slow, fast and slow, fast and slow, which mm-hmm. deals with this, and and I'm maybe about a third of the way through it, and it's it's really fascinating. Keller, John, any any observations on on sort of the psychology of of dealing with wealth and assets and well, money? Well, the two other points that I might add are um, one of the other pieces that we will see that's interesting is also when somebody's sense um, of their own net worth. Um, what you see in a portfolio is that they're spending too much, but their spending is a reflection of how they feel about themselves. So it isn't always a, I'm going out and I'm buying fancy cars and I'm going on big trips and I'm, I'm, I'm throwing the money away. It can be a reflection of how they see their own self-esteem, their own position within the context of the family. Um, the second point is that what you were describing about behavioral finance um, one of the key points which I always find interesting, the gentleman, um, this was done on a lot of the research, uh, was Richard Thaler. Mm-hmm. And Thaler's work on, um, uh, included the thinking on the fact that how do we make decisions? And when we make decisions, there are several that we make that are day-to-day. Uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? What are you going to have for lunch tomorrow? These are day-to-day. But a lot of the issues you talk about when you talk about money and finance, and you get one time to try it. Um, and most of us, um, would hope that we have one time for a marriage, and it's becoming that much more common. But even you know, even Elizabeth Taylor has only a limited number of times that she's tried it. Um, and and in that sense, on a comparison of how comfortable are you 
in the decision, because how many times have you made the decision? Um, there's something to be said behaviorally of how do you feel, how will you act? And so, that's a very fair comment that for most people, estate planning or talking to your children is a first timer. And we're not always great at the first time of anything. That's right. And you have to practice. It is something, if you make it, the one thing I would say is that when you get to, um, uh, in the in your question about, okay, here you are at, at a certain age and your children are mature and you want to start the conversation, to me it's not only do you want to start it, but in theory you never want to end it. So have that as an objective, that it should be an ongoing dialogue. So it's the beginning, not the event. Bingo. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Craig Frankel, and I'm Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with psychologist Dr. Mary Gresham, founder of Atlanta Psychology, John Montag, president and CIO of Montag, a wealth management firm, and Kel Long, a partner at Hendrick, Roscoe, Zitron, and Long. And we are discussing how to anticipate and avoid issues at the planning stage of estate planning. Craig? So we're going to, you're, you, you see, and I'm really addressing this to John and to Kel, you see that your family has a challenge um, and it's about to come up. How do you suggest to the family, what do you do to get them to start the conversation? Do you refer them out to a specialist like Dr. Gresham? Do you suggest a family meeting? Do you suggest maybe we should just sit down and write to ourselves what we care? What do, what do you say to them to start for the family who, for whatever reasons, hasn't started? I often suggest that we do have the family meeting, um, particularly in the aging process, and we're looking at the possibility of oncoming incapacity for older parents is, is a good example. And then how are we going to get those children involved? And is this before process? they're starting to, to, to fade, or or is it as you're starting to see some of the uh, examples of forgetfulness or whatever? Well, it could certainly be before, but uh, you would typically have that conversation with a client who's in their 70s. Um, they, you know, I believe it's 50% uh, of 95-year-olds have dementia is, the, is the, the statistic approximately. Maybe it's higher. So we know we're all going to suffer from, if we live, we're going to have, we're going to suffer, start suffering from oncoming capacity at some point. And I prefer the word diminished capacity, but that's only because I'm starting to diminish. Diminished. So we need to plan for that. And, mm -hmm. and that's when I'm definitely going to get the recommend that we start to get the children involved in that uh, discussion, that process, that planning process and getting those right documents in place. So how do you do it? How do you get that person who's never done it before, who may be experiencing some memory issues to actually do it? Well, the first thing to do is get them to my office. And so typically it's the family counselor, it's the friend, it's the investment advisor, other trusted advisors that get them to my office. So once they get to my office, then they're typically ready to start having that discussion. But it's the hard part is getting them to my office, which I'm don't have control over. And, and, and let's talk about that because as the estate planner, your relationship may just relate, go around estate planning. People are afraid to hire lawyers. I am told, though I don't understand it, that lawyers cost a lot of money. I think they're quite affordable. But you have it's less value, Craig. It's right. value. So you have less opportunity. 
John, where you're seeing somebody on a regular basis and talking to them and your compensation likely is not based on an hourly basis Correct. generally, do you have better opportunities to to start this process and, and succeed at it? Uh, usually where it really starts in our setting is when you're looking at a portfolio. So our, our world is revolves around a portfolio. At the end of the day, that's my compensation. Um, when you get into that conversation, um, you often start to talk about investment objectives, which most people are familiar with and they've heard about. And um, if you can in the conversation is to take a step even, so to speak, 30,000 foot high, higher, 30,000 feet higher than just what are the investment objectives. It's more, well, what is this portfolio really supposed to be used for at the end of the day? And I call that the objectives of investment. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it's – you – you really have a chance to look at somebody and say, well, um, what's the time period for these? Well, they're for the duration of your life. And after your life, what are we really thinking about? And it's as simple as putting that question on the table to get them to start to, you know, you may end up hearing more than you expect about personal issues, which is fine. That's that's part of why you've laid the question on the table. But it also facilitates a chance to say, we would like to you know, either A, we we think everything sounds like it's in good shape and you're communicating well with your family, or B, no, we need to bring somebody in. And, and there are varying levels and there are various reactions. Um, how, how do you deal with, you know, as, as you point out, your practice revolves around the portfolio, the asset or assets. <clears throat> how do you deal with the generation that expects an inheritance? And instead, their their parents may want to give most of it away. They may want to do something charitable. They may want to, um, you know, not give it all away immediately and spill it out over years. You you probably have addressed that. I'm presuming Kel has and, and Mary has as well. We, we often will tell people that until anything can change until essentially somebody passes. So whether they be somebody who expects funds or somebody who doesn't expect funds, they're all kind of in the same boat you, from you, the conversations you, perspective. You remind me of a call I had a number of years ago from someone who was very upset that her inheritance wasn't what she expected and her folks were still in their 60s. And I had to have that explanation, you know, give her that explanation that, you know, they can, it's theirs, they can give it all to the Humane Society if they want. And that's right. You know. But that's very realistic. In today's world, a lot of the estate plans that I am seeing that are now maturing and having the conflicts were really written for the traditional family. Everything yes. to my spouse, and if my spouse isn't alive, to my children. But the concept was the children would be inheriting in their 30s or 40s. Nowadays, that plan, if it's not updated, they're not going to inherit, if at all, till their 60s. And there's going to be a lot less money, and the time that at least the child thinks that they need the money isn't going to be the time when they get it. Yeah, no, we've, we've, had, um, we've had situations where somebody inherited their mon the money in their mid-70s, and there, there was a lot of disdain. There was a lot of resentment. And now, in its own way, you can't... You, Yes, it would have been great to have planned something beforehand, but now here we are, um, and there's not a lot that we can do about it from our perspective. I and mean, this is in our area of expertise. You end up going, you know, to the attorney, uh, uh, to somebody like uh, somebody like Mary, and saying, "Please help us massage through the situation." But at the end of the day, we're looking the person in the eye and saying, "This is but one component." I mean, when you talk about a situation like ours, if they have withheld 
that much information for that long, they're often something else that they it just this just the nature of the relationship. So it's just one component of the at, entire relationship. What I see often at this stage from both sides. So if I see a family and the spouse dies, doesn't matter which the first, second, or tenth spouse, the surviving spouse is always concerned they don't have enough money. Doesn't matter how much money they have. And in the inverse, when I see the planning at this stage, again, doesn't matter what spouse it is, the biggest concern is there won't be enough money left to provide for their loved spouse. And and kind of in a callous way, you know, be damned to the children. They'll figure it out or, or, or see it when my spouse is gone. But frankly, that's all I care about. Dr. Gresham, how do you deal with that very natural emotion, which isn't particularly pragmatic? Well, one of the things I think that's very different about our culture is that we tend to take a very short-sighted view of family. We don't always pass down family stories from generations prior. We don't always pass down family stories about how wealth is created or lost. And we don't see our families beyond the immediate next generation. Doctor, I'm reminded of something I've read about one of the Indian cultures, which, if I'm remembering correctly, said something like, view each decision and its effect not only on you, the next generation, but something like six or seven generations. Seven generations down. Right. And um, that's a very short-sighted view, it, generally, when we're making financial decisions. One of the things I think that's really important for people who are preparing their estate plan to realize is you believe these things belong to you and are yours. Your children and grandchildren don't see it that way. They see it as a family asset. And unfortunately, uh, particularly in families of wealth, money often takes center stage and relationships and people are seen as the background. So the true assets of a family are the people who belong to a family. And you have to put the people first and the money second. So that seems, and this is a kind of a good way to, to kind of conclude our show, that, that, that tells me something that we at Gaslit Frankel care a lot about, which is talk to your family about the family, why you earn the money and how you want the money to go, whether it be to charity or education or anything else. But if you can start talking about values first, you may sneak into also talking about money. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, as we conclude, uh, what we'd like to do is ask each of our guests to uh, give our listeners their uh, contact information, website, any social media, hashtag, or whatever other social uh, conventions you, you follow or subscribe to, uh, so that they can learn more about you, your, your firms and practices, and, and your particular expertise. Kel, let's start with you. Sure. Kel Long, and our uh, website is... Um HRZL for the Hendrick Rasco Zitron Long, HRZLfirm.com. Find all information about us there. Thank you. John? Uh, sure, it's John Montag. And uh, the website is uh, MontagWealthManagement.com. Um, my email is John Montag at MontagWealth.com. And the telephone number is 404 522 5774. I'm Dr. Mary Gresham. My website is atlantafinancialpsychology.com. My contact information is on the website. 
And I would encourage people to go there and read more about what financial psychologists do. Well, as we end our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gastelwitz Frankel, please visit our website at gastelwitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute using our show's hashtag, Wealth Matters. Our guests today were psychologists Dr. Mary Gresham, John Montag, and Kel Long. Next month, we'll be talking about the communication and, and how to avoid disputes as we near the end of our lives. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.